Hey, it's Darius Farou, and on today's episode, I have a special guest. His name is David Graeber, and he is an anthropologist at the London School of Economics. And he's also known as an anarchist activist and known for coining the slogan, We are the 99%, which was a response to the 1% movement. And David has an interesting background. He used to be a Yale professor, and he got kicked out. And we talk about why that was on this podcast and we also talk about his upbringing his background and what made him um, into an activist because he's someone who cares about the working class about uh, like the slogan says the 99 percent right the people who are not part of that one percent and that is exactly the reason that i wanted to talk to david because he recently published a book called bullshit jobs and i really really enjoyed this book because it defines a serious problem and that is a lot of us are stuck in dead-end jobs that don't contribute anything to society now David, when he talks about bullshit jobs, he doesn't talk about hard jobs or doing difficult work. That is not bullshit work. Bullshit work is when you are keeping yourself busy, doing things that don't have additional value to the company you work for or the organization or you know the nonprofit or whatever it is. Uh, there is no contribution whatsoever and if that job would not exist nobody would miss anything but that is not a good way for us mentally to live because on a deeper level if we are stuck and I've got to be honest with you I've had those type of jobs in the past as well and even if you're an entrepreneur you can be a bullshit entrepreneur doing work and you know starting businesses that have zero uh, contribution to your field. And I'm not even talking about trying to change the world. It's just trying to add value, making life easier, trying to solve problems, making yourself useful from that point of view. That's, that's the way that I look at it. And that is also one of the main messages of his book, Bullshit Jobs. And uh, on this podcast, we talk about that extensively. And we talk about several things we talk about how we can identify a bullshit job and then we also talk about some ideas and some things that we can potentially do to get out of it but mostly it's about creating the awareness because (laughs) what i really like about david work david's work because what i really like about david's work is that he doesn't pretend that he has the solutions uh, and all the answers. Um, he spends a lot of time listening to his readers and his audience. And that's basically actually how this book was uh, created as well. Because a lot of people on Twitter uh, told him about their bullshit jobs. Because you know he asked about it. Uh, and he received so, much, so many responses that he decided to turn it into a book. After he released an essay... Uh, several years but we talk about how the book was created as well on this episode if you're curious about that but what it comes down to is try to get awareness and that is a very big challenge i believe there is so much information and knowledge and advice out there that it is difficult to you know identify a problem so from that point of view i really enjoyed bullshit jobs and i also enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will enjoy it as well. So let's get down to it. So David, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you for uh, making the time. Well, thank you for having me. So I've been following you for uh, quite some time now, and I recently uh, read Bullshit Jobs, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. And uh, from following you for some time, I really get the sense that you are a person who cares. And uh, you, you write these books not just, you know, to sound smart but to actually help people at least that's the feeling that i get and i really want to start off with asking you where does this urge come from is there a particular moment you remember from 
early on or where did it grow over time? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, it's nice that you should say that uh, about, about me. I mean, it's interesting, too, because the book in a certain way ends with an appeal to recognize the importance of caring as a form of labor and even says that perhaps we should reconceive our uh, what the creation of value uh, around the idea of care rather than around the idea of production. Um, and I find this interesting because well, it goes back to my own background. Uh, I come from a working class family. I come from a weird working class family. They were working class intellectuals. The house was full of books. Um, both of my parents were very politically involved and especially had been in their youth in very dramatic ways. Uh, my father had fought in the Spanish Civil War. He was an ambulance driver there. And my mom was in the Pins and Needles, which is a famous labor musical comedy. She was a garment worker and she got involved in labor theater. And you know, for three years, the, the play they put on became a surprise hit on Broadway. So it was quite famous for a few years. And then after that, you know, went back to working in the factory again. Um, so, so it's a very unusual background. Um, and I think that, um, one of the arguments I like to make is that the working classes have always been the caring classes in the sense that most caregiving work, most, most take, well, we have this idea of production as being the paradigm for all work and making things is of course because if you don't make things, they don't exist. The world is largely something that we have made, but it's also something that we, we maintain. And, 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 and most work, most working class work uh, included is not making stuff. It's, it's taking care of things. It's taking care of people. It's taking care of plants and animals and buildings and things, uh, main, maintaining things, nurturing things. Um, and, and it's an aspect of of working class life, I think, becomes neglected. There's this stereotype of working class people as chavs and thugs and violent and drunken and, and, and you know, obviously there is some of that. Uh, but, but it's all, the other side of it is that, you know, studies have often shown that, they did one psychological study, I think, where they, they showed different faces to people, uh, and then they asked them their, their income. And they discovered that their ability to recognize the emotions of the people in the faces was inversely related to how much money they made. <laughs> so the poorer you are. So, so the more money you make, the... Yeah, the more oblivious you are to the people exactly, around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something we kind of already know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but they proved it scientifically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it also means that, you know, the less money you make, the more able you are to read other people, to understand other people. Partly because you have to, you know. That's just something you have to do to survive. You're, you're, you're more at the mercy of others. Um, in fact, one of the things I describe in my bureaucracy book is is – how that sort of puts you in these absurd situations where you're in these bureaucratic environments where you're constantly trying to read the people and figure out what will offend them or make them happy or you know reach out to them. But of course, it's completely irrelevant because the point is whether you filled out the form correctly. Mm -hmm. And if you filled out the form correctly, it really doesn't matter what they think of you. And, and somehow you never pick up on that. You're constantly working on the wrong wavelength. So I guess this is something that, that comes to some degree from my background. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's funny that you mentioned the thing about uh, the relationship between money and uh, uh, no, uh, being able to identify emotions. Uh, I also mm. think it's a little bit um, related to self-awareness as well. Um, go on. I, that sounds plausible to me. Yeah, because <laughs> I come from a working class family as well. And uh, if I look at my, my own background, a uh, mm -hmm. li little bit similar, but my my house unfortunately wasn't um, packed with books. But I did seek out, and my parents always encouraged me to focus on my education. Mm -hmm. So that made a big impact, and that's why I really relate to uh, your work. Um, mm -hmm. the, the thing that uh, before I want to get into um, talk about the working class and the mindset, uh, because that's that's one of my you know the, the main things that I try to uh, do with my blog and podcast is to uh, step beyond that uh, you know accepting that the world is the way that it is 
Mm-hmm. Um, but just before we uh, before we get into that, I want to talk to you about um, the book, the Bullshit Jobs, and the essay that you wrote in 2013. Yes, uh, the essay on the phenomena of bullshit jobs. Exactly. So what uh, made you turn it into a book? And what was uh, the essay about, just quickly for the people who okay. haven't read it? The essay I wrote in response to a guy named Craig, who um, was a friend of a friend. He was like sort of in the circles I was in. Um, who founded a, it was a spinoff from International Times, which is this famous old, um, back in the 60s, it was this huge thing, underground newspaper. And it's still running on in an online edition. He wanted to form a print version. There was a quarrel. And he, anyway, he ended up it not being the print edition of International Times. He just started a new magazine called A Strike. And um, he wanted a few people to, sort of wanted to set the tone by doing some sort of wild, crazy experimental stuff. So he went to me and said, do you have anything lying around that, like, you don't think anybody else would really publish? <laughs> Which I most certainly did. Good question. Yeah. Um, you know, something, something crazy and dangerous and interesting. Um, it doesn't really matter what it is as long as it's in the general anarchist, you know, anti-establishment spirit of the thing. Um, and I said, yeah, yeah, I could think of that. In fact, I, I'd been kind of hoarding all my crazy off-the-wall ideas that I would never possibly publish and finding places to put them around that time. Um, since the, with the success of the book on debt, you know, I had a little window open that I could publish stuff mm-hmm. that never have gotten away with otherwise. So, so I, a lot of stuff came out. Um, and he, now it's harder, actually, again. But but um, so I wrote this piece. and And it's funny. It's almost like... Uh, it was almost like a thought experiment. I didn't know if it was even really true, but being someone who's not from a professional background and suddenly thrust into this these very hyper-professional academic milieus, they're not corporate, but you know, you, kind of people you meet at a party who aren't academics, if you're you know, but are married to them, um, or their cousins or something like that. You know, they're they're often this this kind of class that that um, work in offices at things you don't really know what it is they do, and and yeah, I came to the point where it became this kind of running gag where I, I would ask people what they do and they'd be embarrassed. Oh, nothing really, you know, and and then you kind of pin them down. Maybe a few drinks later, you're like, yeah, but what do you really do? I mean, you actually do all day. And, and they would say, well, nothing really. I mean, I mean, I admit that. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't being modest. I actually did nothing. I work an hour or two a week. I mean, a computer could do the whole thing, but uh, I you know, maybe I put in a couple hours. But basically, I'm sitting there updating my Facebook profile. Yeah, looking and, busy. Looking busy, hoping the boss doesn't notice, and um, or even they don't have a boss; they're the boss. You know, mm. uh, and and it's it's happened with such regularity that I began to wonder. Well, maybe this is really common, and nobody's talking about it. So you know, in a way, here I am. I'm an anthropologist in two senses. Right? You know, I'm an anthropologist because that's my job, and I'm also an anthropologist, and I'm a stranger foreigner to this environment trying to figure out how things work asking the kind of questions that it would just never occur to anybody from that society to ask you know um and well, but why do you brush your teeth in this way you know or, or whatever it is that an anthropologist uh, notices that other people don't notice you know it was a similar sort of thing i would be like well, well how does this job work and 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 so i thought all right i'll write an article about that Maybe this is really common. I mean, I keep meeting them. Um, maybe all these office jobs, like you know, are, are like this, or, or huge proportions of them. Maybe there's a whole class of people who just aren't doing anything and pretending to work. Wow, that must be really miserable for them. I imagine what that must be like. And in a way, you know, it's it's this is the paradox of 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 the bullshit jobs book. You know, I'm a person who is not from that kind of background. In a way, it's like. Me as the working class people telling people of these professional managerial backgrounds, wait, I feel your pain. You go out to get hollow because you go into the office and know that you're 
either not doing anything or you're actually making the world worse, but you have to do it to feed your families or maintain the lifestyle that you assume that everybody should expect. And, and you, you're miserable. I understand. You know? um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I wrote a piece and I wrote it as, it was a political journal. And so yeah. I wrote it as a kind of a, um, as a political premise, I said, well, maybe this is the reason we're not working 15 hour weeks. You know, back in the 30s, they were assuming that by now we'd be living lives of leisure. Automation would replace all farming, which it has, and a lot of factory work, which it has. And, and, and therefore, they, the result would be that we would be, you know, pursuing our own projects for, for most of the day and only working three or four hours. And and that is technically possible, I said, and I think it's true. Well, uh, it's just, a, just to interrupt, you're referring to John Maynard K. Yeah, he, he put it out. But everybody yeah. talk in this yeah, way. Okay. Yeah. They talk, they imagine what the future is going to be like. They yeah. assume it was going to be a massive reduction of working hours. And there had been a re reduction of working hours um in, you know, there was a struggle for the eight-hour day. And, and actually, you know, in, in the 30s, they moved to a seven-hour day in a lot of industries because of the Depression. And it seemed like that was going to continue happening. In fact, there was a point where – I just heard about this recently in the United States when they almost passed a 30-hour week. It was just barely stopped by some sort of industrial lobby, but it came very close. And the reason my mother was in the play and, and she was a garment worker was because they did a seven-hour day, a 35-hour week. Um, they, the, the union managed to enforce that, so everybody had an extra hour, so they were making up activities. Mm. So wh when did uh, Our Parent Work Week uh, was established? Was the, is it true that uh, during the time of uh, Henry Ford? Because that, that's the stuff that mm. – there was a lot of I mean, yeah. he officialized it for his industry, um, yeah. but but a lot of it was um, anarchists actually were the ones who pushed for that mm -hmm. because if you look at the history of trade unionism in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, the the socialists tended to push for more wages and the anarchists tended to push for less hours. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, what, it, what was their drive? You think less hours <laughs> just to enjoy life, or was it? Well, yeah, to have a life, you know, like, like the question is, do you want, you know, do you buy into the, okay, I mean, I, well, this is, this would be one way to think about it. And I, I've done, I spent a great deal of time thinking about it ever since I read that when I was a teenager, sort of reading up on the history of Spanish anarchism, which I was always interested in because of course of my father fought in Spain. Um, I, I, I read this thing about the socialist versus the anarchist unions and the eight hour day was the anarchist thing that was they were really pushing for that the haymarket uh, massacre for example um when they executed all these anarchists they were mostly eight hour day um campaigners when, and when was that the, it was on may 1st 18 oh god 80 something um now you caught so me that was, that was an important moment in yes it was very very important that's what may day commemorates okay. is is yeah um a bomb went off some cop was killed they blame the anarchists, and they just basically rounded up all the most prominent anarchists in Chicago at the time, and ended up hanging them. Um, this is this is technically what May Day, the workers, uh, uh, you know, festival, International Workers Solidarity Day, actually um, commemorates. Although it really goes also back to the May Day celebrations and the fact that. Um, you know, in medieval times, even the fact that peasant revolts and insurrections tended to start on Christmas or May Day or Carnival during holidays—that's another story. Yeah. Um, the 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 thing about uh, the eight-hour week is that, uh, yeah, I read this thing that pointed out that it was the anarchists who were saying less hours. You know, we just went out of the system. We want time for ourselves. We don't care if we're poor. You know, we're proud of the fact that we can live on nothing, but we want time to think about the meaning of life, to organize, to have a life with each other. And whereas it was the socialists who actually bought into the sort of like, no, we want a right to have a consumer, you know, utopia just like everybody else. Okay. We, we want to manage it. You know, we, it should be collectively uh, created. And if you think about it, you can go all the way back to the Middle Ages. Generally speaking, they always talk about target incomes. No, for example, why is it so difficult to find a taxi in the rain? Do you know this? Um, it's one reason it's so difficult to find a taxi in the rain is because taxi drivers tend to work until they make a certain amount of money and then they go home. Mm -hmm. So if it's raining, they make money really fast and then uh, they go okay. to the taxis. <laughs> 
yeah. yeah. So, so in a way, that's how all economies worked up to up to a certain point in the Middle Ages. If a guild, you know, the price of their wares went up, you know, they were making velvet coats, and their competitor went out of business. You know, there was a flood. Yeah or something and and uh, suddenly the price of velvet coats went up instead of making more velvet coats they would make less right so then the question is would that compound the problem but no then they would take more people into the industry so um so that's why guilds controlled the, you know, the labor supply but but the point is that that everybody was working with an idea of how much you need to have a proper life and once they attained that they would stop working so you know if if wages went up people took more holidays they and, stop and working in like uh, like like as in know, early retirement or just for a temporary. You just say just take a lot of holidays. If you look at like after the Black Death is a great example of this. Um, you know, Black Death wipes out about a third of the workforce. Mm. It, wages go way up, right? I mean, uh, labor becomes more expensive. So the first thing that happens is all over Europe. Suddenly, the number of days that are festival days just skyrockets. Um, there's some places almost half the days a year nobody's working. It's definitely like a, a third of the uh, of the days a year were, were holidays of one kind or another. You read about like any of those books of British calendar customs and things like that. You can find that's what they're about. You know, they have these endless descriptions of these crazy festivals, like you know, on uh, the second Tuesday of every March. Uh, women can form marauding bands and kidnap men on the road and hold, hold them for ransom. And on this day, children are, you know, placed in charge of the church. And on this day, and they're just like have these crazy world turned upside down inversion rituals. And, and they just be all year round. You know, every third day was like this. Now, so you could just see after the Black Death, we were just having so much fun with it. And uh, but But the question is, you know, once you have this idea that you work until you reach a certain amount, which you think is like all you need, and then you relax and, and have fun, how do you get to a system where you're constantly maximizing production, which is what capitalism is based on? Mm-hmm. And the same was true of rich people. I mean, I was called the Sinbad complex. If you read in The Thousand and One Nights, the very first scene where this guy, Sinbad, also named Sinbad, sort of stumbles into this mansion he's a porter and he sees this guy who's like the you know definition of success he's sitting there surrounded by other retired merchants and they're dressed in golden brocades and there's dancing girls and grapes and they're just having a great time discussing philosophy and um and this is the point you know he went off on his journeys he made a lot of money and then once you make enough money, you stop, you cash in, you get the dancing girls and the grapes and you, you enjoy life. And, and, and this is what capitalists don't do. They never cash in the chips. They just keep reinvesting and reinvesting, growing, growing. Well, you know, Max Weber was one of the first people who asked that question. Well, what happened in early modern Europe that suddenly people stopped being sent bad, stopped retiring, stopped, um, you know, taking it easy and cashing in the chips, but instead, um, felt they just had to continually pour all their profits into expanding production more and more, uh, thus making a capitalist regime possible. And he said, well, they ha- would have to be basically nuts. They'd have to be some kind of religious fanatics. And sure enough, if you look at Calvinism, yeah, these guys were totally insecure about whether they're among the elect and the only way you can possibly you know, cultivate the sense of terror and gloom and doom of the, your place in the world. Am I going to hell? And 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 once you get that sort of insecurity directed and, you don't, and being a Puritan, there's nothing you're really allowed to spend it on anyway you can't have the dancing girls in the graves um so 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 that's how it happened so the question is how do you get to a situation where most people act like that where most people given a choice between more money and less hours will take more money well you know a lot of the time you have to just artificially create debt or other things like that to force people to act yeah, like that that's, yeah, that's a great point yeah so, yeah so the, the the things that you talk about um Remind me a lot of what I am doing and what my my listeners and readers are really interested in is that having uh, a a good quality of life, yeah. and 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 maximize that and also have a job that's meaningful and uh, I think that's something that you know on a deeper level all of us kind of strive for and w- with your essay and now the book uh, bullshit jobs. Um, I see that you try to define the problem that, hey guys, this is a problem that we're waking up like a robot 
every single day mm -hmm. and going to a job that we don't enjoy and and, not, and is not even contributing to society. Yeah. It's just helping you to make some money so you don't starve. Yeah, the only reason we seem to be doing it is because somehow collectively we've decided as a society that people who don't work should don't deserve anything. And it doesn't matter whether the work is actually necessary. I mean, that's how crazy it's gotten. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing is that uh, uh, what I – because when you talk about anarchism, uh, often – uh, we don't know what the definition is and like what does it mean. A lot of people think, "Oh no, I'm I'm not an anarchist," right? But the no. ideas that you talk about, I would, I can definitely relate to that. What's more, uh, there's a whole uh, stream of people online uh, inspired by Tim Ferriss and the Four Hour Work Week. I don't know mm. if you're familiar with. Oh, just been I've just been reading up on that. Recently. Okay, yeah, well, just contacted those guys because I think that's a, that's a very important call. Okay. I think that's basically what you're saying is that uh, the whole purpose of that book for our work week is to just to maximize uh, the quality of life. Yeah, and people have this idea. This is fascinating. One of the big responses to my my original bullshit job essays was saying. Oh, you know, people need to be in work because they won't know what to do with themselves otherwise. They make like a lot of crazy arguments. I, one person I know actually seriously made the argument saying, well, you know, if people aren't working, crime rates go up, rates of intoxication, you know, drinking, drugs, um, you know, people, people get in trouble. Um, and, 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 you know, I remember thinking like, okay, like if we just – locked people in preventative detention in prison for eight hours a day, crime rates would also go down. We don't do that, do we? We think it would be wrong. How is this different? You know, I was making up a job for them to do so they don't get in trouble. Different than just plain locking them up. No. Morally, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, so so there's a, there's a certain craziness. But the other craziness is is imagining that people just won't know what to do with themselves. And, and you know, I always say, speak for yourself. You know, I can think of all sorts of things to do with myself. Yeah, no, it reminds me of one of one thing that uh, uh, one of my former classmates of university t told me uh, uh, like two, three years ago because I had a corporate job, which was bullshit <laughs> in the past. <laughs> and I woke up one day and I was like, what am I doing here? And I want to do something that's more meaningful that I enjoy. And so I started writing and uh, blogging and podcasting and all those things. But I remember having a conversation with that friend and I, uh, he was unhappy and with his career and where his life was going. And I asked him, what would you do? What kind of job would you do? Or how would you fill your days Mm -hmm. If you uh, didn't have to worry about money. And he told me, well, I would just go on a boat and uh, just have two women around me. And uh, like a stupid answer. I was like, dude, I'm not, I'm not going to talk to you like this. I'm, I, I'm asking you this question in a serious manner because it is possible to turn, I think, uh, something that you're passionate about or something that can pro provide value to people into mm -hmm. a career. But I think that that level of thinking of I would just spend all day doing nothing and on leisure, I don't know. I, I think being on a boat like would be really fun for a week. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After that, you might get a little bored. And I mean, I suppose if you cruise around the world, you could you know do it for a few months. But yeah. how many times do you want to cruise around the world? <laughs> exactly. That's that, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. We all revert to. Do you think that we all, after time, revert to doing something? Is that some? Do you think that's? Yeah, it was one of the premises of my book. Is that you don't have to force people to do stuff. I mean, people go crazy if they don't have something to do. Yeah. I mean, think about lottery winners. They always say that, like, when people win the lottery, mostly they don't quit their jobs. Um, and and those who do end up usually falling apart. Those the the ones who don't quit their jobs are much happier 10 years later. Uh, and and often these are jobs they don't even like very much. But, you know, I mean, it's better better doing something than nothing. And um, the example I always give, and I mention this in the book, 
an ex-girlfriend of mine pointed this out, and I thought she was very, very perceptive. Um, she said, prisons, um, think about especially minimum security prisons. I mean, the maximum security prisons, they kind of make you work. If you don't work, you don't get the, you know, the 50 cents an hour to get your cigarettes or whatever, um, or, or even basic basic needs. So, so sometimes they force you to work, but like even where they force you to work, most, most prisoners would far prefer a chain gang to say solitary confinement. Um, but when like minimum security prisons where you can just play cards and watch TV all day, they actually punish people by taking away their work privileges oh, because mm. it's boring to sit there and watch <laughs> TV all day. Even these guys who are a lot of them hardened criminals, not exactly very altruistic people, yeah. um, nonetheless would rather you know be pressing shorts in the prison laundry or cleaning latrines in the gym or you know than just sitting there doing nothing. So they actually prefer. Yeah. The work over just doing nothing. Yeah, if you if you if you want to punish them, you say you you know you 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 can't do work anymore. Mm. You have to save mm. yourself. That is a really interesting uh, <laughs> finding, <laughs> and, and it it shows that too often uh, when we you know bring this topic up that um, it's just uh, kind of uh, it's based on thinking. It's, yeah. it's based on total false premise. I mean, yeah. you know, like. And it's true, like the one or two people I've known who are in that situation, that's the first thing they always said, oh, you know, I can't get any meaningful work, you know, I'm really trying to find something I can do with myself that, you know, otherwise I just go crazy. Um, yeah, I knew a blues guy who was in prison for a couple of years for shooting another blues guy. And, um, that was the first thing he said. It's like, there's no meaningful work in this place. They put me in the room. Security place is nice, but, you know, the work is just made up. It's just like bullshit. I don't want to do real work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in the book, you talk about uh, several types of uh, pointless jobs. Yeah. And... Uh, I would really like uh, the titles for them, the uh, flunkies, the goons, <laughs> the duct tapers, the box stickers, and the task mask, uh, masters. Um, can we just quickly talk about them? So, Because okay. I think um, my goal with this podcast is to raise awareness, um, uh, not, not just for myself as well, you know, because I think it's not only bullshit jobs, but I also think that we do a lot of bullshit, bullshit tasks. That's yes, the bullshitization of real work is actually, a, if anything, even more of a important social issue, in my mm. opinion. Yeah, because I think that that it's a real problem that you know nurses, teachers, all these people who are doing really important work have to spend more and more of their time doing paperwork and can't actually teach students or take care of patients. Um, so, so, so that's another issue. But, yeah. but of the of the five types, the five types. I like that because it's kind of a collaborative project. Yeah. Um, I kind of I kind of advertised on Twitter. I said, "Have you ever had a totally pointless job? Tell me all about it." I made up a, a Gmail account. Uh, Do I have a BS job or what at gmail dot com? And uh, people sent in narratives, and they kind of bounced it back and forth with a lot of them, and had discussions, and 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 so I could get a sense of what kind of bullshit jobs there are and what people think is bullshit about them and how they think they come about. Um, and and thus, the categories I ended up with come out of that. I ended up with hundreds of these things, hundreds of testimonies. And um, so to go through them, the mo most obvious one is flunkies. And in a way, flunkies are the most important structurally because all of them are flunkies in a sense. Uh, but flunkies is the first one. And in a way, almost all of them are flunkies. Uh, in that they, they are there to make someone else look good or feel important. So even if you're doing something else, often they'll keep you on once they realize you're pointless because executives like to have lots of underlings, you know? In fact, often their, their power is measured by how many people they have working for them. So, but flunkies are there specifically for that and just for that. Uh, cold callers for a broker would be an example. You know, the broker hasn't called somebody himself, that yeah, and he would be important. He has someone whose entire job is to say, hello, there is a broker of some information you might be interested in, you know, that kind yeah, of exactly. thing. Yeah. 
Um, and that's it. That's all he's there for. Uh, receptionists at places that don't need receptionists. Obviously, some places do need receptionists. But other places um, where they get one call a day and no one ever drops by, they still have someone sitting at the desk doing nothing, watering the plants, you know, filling the candy bowl, or but basically not rewinding the clock, grandfather clock now and then. Uh, but otherwise, just sitting there. Uh, and the major reason is if you don't have a receptionist, like, you're not a real company, you know. So you need to have one, whether or not. So it's oh. just to make you look like you're, you're a real company. It's all about the appearance. It's all about appearances. Yeah. So some flunkies are like that, and and then often assistants. I, I point out that it's somewhat ambiguous sometimes because you know having a bunch of secretaries or assistants is often um, you might often those jobs are bullshit, but often, you know, the secretary is doing all the work and the, their boss is bullshit. You know? mm, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That happens often as well. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of classic phenomenon. Okay, so so you're never quite sure whether the flunky is really doing the work or not. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so that we flunkies. Goons is one I kind of had to make up, and it wasn't something that occurred to me originally. I had to make up a constant term for it because so many people who had these kind of aggressive jobs – which helped the company in an immediate sense, but which they thought, basically they thought the entire industry was unnecessary. You see, uh, you know, that was one I hadn't really anticipated. But a lot of people wrote in and said, I have a bullshit job. I'm a corporate lawyer. You know, mm -hmm. corporate lawyers don't need to exist. The only reason you need a corporate lawyer is because your competitor has one. And the same thing would be true of a telemarketer. Almost all telemarketers thought they were doing bullshit. Uh, telemarketers, corporate lawyers, PR guys, um, advertising people. And, you know, one guy wrote me, um, it's really stuck in my head, it was a special effects guy. And he says, you know, if I'm creating an illusion that you know is an illusion, um, then that's great. You know, that's not bullshit. That's wonderful. That's entertainment. You know, if I'm, I'm making dinosaurs chase fight robots or something like that mm -hmm. great you know this is this is this is what i live for you know it's fun it's wonderful everybody's happy uh, however 95% of the time i'm not doing that i'm making you know celebrities look like they're not fat don't have pimples don't have uh, you know um uh, have perfect skin uh, uh, beautiful white teeth and then like augmenting the effects of the various products we sell people to, to make them think that, that their skin and teeth and so forth can look like that. Um, so, so basically, when you see somebody on a talk show, they're actually not – they don't actually look like that. Mm. <laughs> There's some guy you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> applying special effects technology you know, yeah, to make yeah. the same ones that would make it seem like a car blows up. Yeah, well, uh, I have one word, Kardashians. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, That's what you know, every time I've actually met some movie star, the first thing you think is like, Whoa, that guy's really old, and you know, it's yeah. not like, yeah. And uh, anyway, so so, um, yeah. So so basically, so there's two kinds of illusions. This guy was saying there's the kind of illusion which you do to make people happy because they know it's an illusion, and they're trying to figure out how you did it and spawn. It's like a magic trick. You know, there's a trick going on, and then there's the illusions which trick people into thinking this is what people ordinary ordinarily should look like. Yeah. You know, so that so so the real illusion that's, is that's, that's more like deception, and the other is entertainment. Exactly, and the deception illusion happens on an unconscious level. You just get a false standard about what humans are like, so that everyone around you looks ugly, and 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 you look in the mirror and you hate yourself, and then you buy things that don't work, and they made the illusion they do, and so he said that's a good. You know, I'm I'm just like interfering in people's lives in a, in a essentially aggressive and and deleterious fashion. So 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 okay. So that's that's that category. But what what just if we continue to what what uh because. I would say, for example, the people who are on uh, Instagram uh, pushing uh, nonsense products yes. are also goons, I, mm -hmm. I would say. I think a lot of people in advertising feel that way. Yeah, but, but I think also, I don't know. I don't know them. The, the, I haven't talked to people that but, but I get mm -hmm. the sense that they kind of like the attention as well, that, that they enjoy that um that kind of role is that something that you've ever gotten into? Is like I haven't talked to that yeah. many yeah. Um, 
advertisers about this sort of thing. But the ones I have are the ones who don't like it. You know, mm -hmm. so I don't know um, what the percentages are. That would have to be determined by the statistics, and and maybe couldn't even then because who knows whether people would tell you the truth. Because yeah, if but you I, don't have any values, then. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, they're like, cynical yeah. bastards, and there's people who just do it for a living. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. What the <laughs> Yeah, so you have to figure out for yourself who you are. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 a good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's all whole magazines like you know AdBusters, right? Mm -hmm. All those people who write for AdBusters actually work in advertising, but they hate their jobs and you know feel guilty, so they write this anti you know corporate anti advertising stuff on their own free time using the techniques that they learned in Madison Avenue mm. to try to subvert the entire project. Okay. So, you know, there are people with conscience. They just, you know. so, so, so the next one are the, uh, the duct tapers? <laughs> the duct tapers, yes. The duct tapers are, the phrase duct taping comes from the software industry. And it's, duct taping is, is basically taking software that isn't compatible with other software because it wasn't designed properly or it wasn't designed with the environment in which it was going to be operating in mind and sort of fixing it and like, you know, so that things can work together, duct taping things together. But, but it becomes so common that almost everyone who works in software is now a duct taper because they have this idea that if there's anything you would do for free, we shouldn't have to pay for it. And a lot of people will develop the interesting stuff, do the actual software development, which is fun, for free at night. You know, so so all these companies basically employ people who do freeware for, uh, on their own time and don't get paid for it, and then get paid to like actually duct tape it all together because. You know, if no, if nobody's paying them to develop the software, they don't have to bother to make it compatible. They can just do the fun part. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the duct taping is therefore what you do to compensate for the fact that the stuff wasn't designed right to begin with. Now, this has struck me as a great paradigm for how a lot of work works. Uh, that a lot of people seem to have jobs which just exist to repair the damage caused by other people in that organization. Say you have somebody who's um, in a position because they're somebody's cousin and they don't know how to do the work. Then you need to hire somebody else to sort of like follow them around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's whatever it is they broke. Yeah, it's fixing problems that shouldn't even exist in the first place. <laughs> That's for duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> There's a million examples. Yeah, yeah well, I've, I I can recognize that a little bit as well. I've I've worked in IT research and uh, uh, consulting, and and you basically think sometimes, why is this even a problem? Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, sometimes it, it's almost as if <coughs> there's a leak in the roof, and they said, oh, well, we don't have to bother fixing the you know fixing the leak. We'll just put a bucket underneath and hire someone to empty the bucket every hour. Yeah, exactly. Or like I, I have uh, some leakage in my apartment uh, currently, and um, there's some water on the roof that uh, mm -hmm. isn't um, you know it, there's there is not a good way to get rid of that water. So it it just mm -hmm. uh, stays in some places and then got some leakage. And then the the first idea is just to Use some uh, some glue or some rubber or whatever just to uh, make sure that uh, the the leak is um, filled up. But another long term solution is make sure that the that the whole place is covered or that spot is covered so that the water doesn't stay there exactly. at all. Yeah. So then you remove the problem entirely instead of every few years trying to <laughs> exactly solve yeah. the leak. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so 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 that that easy to find examples of that all over the place. Um, next, there's box tickers, and that's a classic bullshit job position. We all know this for government. Basically, a, a box ticker is someone who's there to enable you to say that you're doing something that you're not actually doing, often involving filling out forms that say you did it, um, and and. Commissions of inquiry in government are like the classic example mm. of that. You know, they say, "Oh, look, um, there was there's this I don't know cops are shooting black people all the time at traffic stops. What should we do? Um, it's a scandal." I said, "Well, we'll form a commission to investigate the problem." Mm. <laughs> you know, and, and and 
that way you can pretend you didn't know it was happening. But of course, you did know it was happening. And that way you can pretend that once we have all the facts and we're going to do something about it, even though everybody knows you really won't. Um, and that kind of thing. Oh, look, there's a bribery scandal. Oh, we need to get to the bottom of this. You know, that 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 kind of fact-finding commission is a classic box-ticking ritual. But corporations do this all the time. I mean, there's whole industries like compliance, which according to the people right to me, right? I don't know. Maybe there's some people who actually do care that they're in compliance with regulations and hire people to genuinely look into this. But the ones that you know, the ones that have written me say the whole thing is just a total scam. They're just sitting around all day, like filling out forms, making it sound like they've done a check for things they haven't checked for or don't want to check for, even if they knew there was a problem. Um, I mean, I knew people who whose entire job was to do sort of catastrophe risk analysis. Let us see what would happen in the following scenarios. I'm an insurance company. And what would be a worst case scenario? And what would we do to make sure that we would be prepared for it? And in fact, no one has this, you know, because these regulations say we have to you know, uh, be prepared for the various eventualities. So, so they would sit around and model um, what would happen. And, you know, every now and then they'd say, okay, we're totally unprepared for this one. They say, okay, we'll massage the numbers until we are. <laughs> so they would just go back. <laughs> that's <a> great solution. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all they did. You yeah. Know? So yeah, yeah. it's like literally what you uh, just like taking boxes all the time. <laughs> yeah. The way exactly. that you, right. the title and, says. And people misunderstand this. They say, oh, box fixers are necessary. I want to make sure that there's somebody checking that my plane is, you know, like in everything's in order before I take off. Now, the box ticking is when you fill out the forms instead of checking the plan. Mm. Okay, yeah. so more just just be, yeah. because you have to do it uh, and not yeah. necessarily because your goal is to make right. it safer. The important thing is the paperwork, not the actual mm. doing it. And when the paperwork substitutes for the doing of it, that's box ticking. Mm. So, you know, for example, uh, I'm, a, I'm a professor and it used to be we never had to fill out time allocation surveys. But nowadays, we supposed to seem to be doing it every two weeks or so. And they're really long and detailed breakdown of exactly what you do. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, it so becomes what, what a is it exactly? time allocation yeah. survey. Yeah. You know, the, this is a classic box ticking ritual. Like, what are they going to do with this information? They're going to find no one's ever. So they want to they want to know what you've been doing exactly what I do every week how many hours I spend on this how many hours I spend on that and first of all no one's going to tell the truth second of all they don't even have a category for reading and writing books that doesn't count apparently as part of your work well, <laughs> even if you're a professor sounds like uh, one of the most important things to do <laughs> you think right yeah uh -huh. um, but um, yeah the whole so so but the key thing is like these type of forms you know they, the other thing they don't have a category for is Filling out time allocation surveys, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> which is like it's becoming an hour every week. Yeah. But it, the, the, there's no purpose to it. There's not. There's not like yeah. we're going to optimize our time, or we're going to identify <laughs> time wasting <laughs> activities, or no, yeah. half yeah. academic life is filling out, you know, long analyses of why this department needs the money it's already getting, and we'll get the same thing next year. You know, if they didn't do anything, it would make no difference whatsoever. The only effect it has is to mean that, like, another 30 hours of work that you could have spent teaching is down the drain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So, I, for example, I personally sometimes I do record for just for my own self awareness where my time goes. But it's a very uh, conscious exercise that I do. Just to, my goal is to eliminate. Uh, time wasting activities. Sometimes I do things without realizing it. It's like yeah, if you're doing it for yourself, that's fine. Yeah. You know, there's no way somebody in a central office who's ever gonna who's never met me exactly. is gonna have anything useful to do with this document. That's why I stopped filling them out. Yeah, exactly. So and then taskmasters, uh, the, the middle middle management you were talking about. Middle management is a classic example. Yeah. There's kind of two versions of it, but they bleed into each other. Uh, one are people who supervise people who don't need supervision. And often I got letters from people who had been, they had had a job and then they got kicked upstairs. You know, they did a good job. So they promoted them to management and they realized that their job was to make people do the task that they used to do. But of course, having 
previously done that task, they know that they don't need someone to make them do it. <laughs> they're going to do it whether there's a middle manager or there anyway. So then they're kind of stuck in this quandary. This one guy actually said, you know, it's like, um, it was a lovely letter. It started, I have a bullshit job and it happens to be in middle management. Um, and it's basically what he said is like, well, you know, when I realize these guys don't really need supervision, I tried to like, I just allocate the work to them. And even that, like they could just go to the guy I go to and kind of say, you know, um, I'm just totally unnecessary intermediary. He said, so I, I tried to allocate myself some work, and for a while I did that, but then my supervisor found out and said, no, no, you're not supposed to be doing the work. You're supposed to be managing the people. And so it's like, what am I going to do? So, 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 so that's kind of part one. But if he then went off and assigned box-ticking rituals to people, then he would become you know, taskmaster part two, which is the guy who actually makes up bullshit for other people to do. And that's that a, increases you know, productivity then. Yeah. And yeah, because like you'd have to say, okay, are people hitting their productivity numbers? I will, you know, create this series of forms and, and, and mm -hmm. review meetings to discuss how to raise productivity, which will, of course, lower productivity. Exactly. <laughs> it always does the opposite if you start yeah. out that way. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. task answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, my, the the reason that I really enjoyed this book and that why I wanted to interview you on this podcast is to uh, raise awareness because that's what it did uh, for myself as well. Is to because uh, this theory and just being aware of how much bullshit jobs there are, how much bullshit tasks there are. Uh, I think uh, for me as an entrepreneur. Um, can also help me to look at my own task. But also, if you want to build an organization, this mm -hmm. really helps. Yeah, with what to look out for. Exactly. Yeah, maybe I have a great future in corporate managerial consultancy, but maybe not too. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on where you go. If the, the organizations are too big, then all you'll be doing is uh, playing politics. That's right. If you know Goldman Sachs wants to hire me to tell them how to fire eighty percent of their staff, exactly. I'll do it for a. I'll do it for ten million. Yeah, and that's yeah. the problem. That is it. What what you just said right now is that the kind of the problem that you were trying to raise with this book that we don't want to acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, I was very interested in why nobody sees this as a social problem hmm. because. You know, I mean, we don't really know what percentage the surveys have said 37 to 40 percent. Maybe that's a little high. Maybe it's not. But, you know, if a third of the people in, in, in a country are going to work every day feeling if my job were to disappear tomorrow, it would make no difference or the world might even be better. You know, um, won't. Why is that not a problem? <laughs> Why are we just all going, oh, whatever, they, they make a living anyway. <laughs> I mean, this is bizarre. What's happened to us? Society is literally insane. It's the same thing when they talk about automation. Oh, no, automation, the robots are coming for our jobs. You won't have jobs anymore. What are we going to do? People will starve. It's like if there's ever a sign that we live in a totally irrational economic system, it's that the prospect of robots replacing unpleasant forms of work is a problem. I mean, like, I thought capitalism was supposed to be efficient. You know, that was the line. Like, the system, it's like, all right, it creates inequality, it makes people miserable and alienated in a lot of ways, but at least it's efficient. You know, well, that's about as inefficient as you can possibly think. Like, people are saying, like, there's no possible way we could simply redistribute the necessary forms of work in a fairly equitable fashion and, and thus keep people alive and, 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 and prosperous with the, the, the consumer bounty that will be created by the robots. Like that's impossible under our given system. I'd say that's not an efficient system. Yeah, that, well, <laughs> I definitely <laughs> agree. And like the one of the, one of the things I also really enjoyed was that you, in the book, you explicitly say that, This is a, a book about a problem, but every time you write a book about a problem, people are like, hey, what's your solution? Right. And, well, and then I, they just talk about that. And yeah, exactly. Like, and, and, and even if you do come up with a solution, they say, well, what's your plan for instituting that solution? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I personally, uh, I, I'm, I don't think that the solution is that important to talk about when it comes to this problem because – I think the the awareness is already such a big problem that it takes us a long time just to realize that we can live our lives differently. And one of the examples that I really like in recent years is um, a blogger called Money Mr. Money Mustache. Have you heard of? 
No, I mean, uh, tell me about. So it. he um, he and his wife had uh, good tech jobs um, several years ago. I can't remember, but um, they saved up their money. They lived very lean, mm-hmm. and they saved uh, almost something like eight hundred thousand dollars or something. I can't, can't, I can't remember exactly, but it was a substantial amount of money. And in their early thirties, they retired, and cool. they put mm-hmm. the the money in an index fund. Okay. And he did, and uh, currently, you know, he lives very lean. I think he even built his own house. Um, doesn't own a car, even if he doesn't own a car, it's, it's something you know that he bought very cheaply. No debt. Um, yeah. They they like that. I don't very have a simple car. life. Yeah. And he puts his experience and the lessons he learned about personal fi- finance on the internet and he inspired thousands and thousands of people uh, and he was ac- actually again inspired by the book uh, Your Money or Your Life oh uh, yes I read that one yeah, yeah. and uh, well, I've read nice. that too and I really enjoyed it because I think to, to this problem that that is kind of a solution if you look at it at a personal level so I, I, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, on a you know wider scale on a national level but on a personal level I think um, recognizing that this is a problem. Sorry about that. Someone's calling. I yeah, no <laughs> Recognizing so, this is a problem, yeah. Yeah, so on a personal level, uh, recognizing that having a meaningless job will definitely de- deteriorate the quality of your life and your own sanity over a long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and realizing that you can do it differently if you start early, save your money, uh, live lean, and uh, specifically try to do a job or have a job that contributes something. It's You learn a skill, you are able yeah. to help people and all, those something kind of things. how to do. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, making a contribution to the world. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> to me, that's really an important message to put, put out there. So just to yeah. wrap and, and- things up. I think that's that, that is really important, and there are ways to avoid it. I mean, some of the heroes of my book are people who like managed to figure out a way to do, you know, really, really bullshit, but nonetheless quite remunerative work for one day a week, and otherwise they did something actually useful for themselves. Yeah, um, yeah or managed to figure out how to repurpose the time at their bullshit job to actually do something smaller. You know, there's there's ways to yeah. do it. That's really hard. Most people find it almost impossible to do the latter, but it can be done. And 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 I think there's a movement toward more flexible work arrangements and people sort of becoming self-employed. Yeah. It's one of the big political issues here in the UK, and I think the Labour Party is actually good on this one. Um, they haven't got much attention. The Corbyn people have said, like, we want to be, you know, we're the Labour Party, but we don't want to be just the party of, of – wage earning employees but also independent workers because you want to encourage people to work for themselves so they're like trying to change the tax code which very much discriminates against self-employed people Mm -hmm. to to make things you know easier you know to have some equity so you're not punished for basically quitting your job and 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 trying to support yourself independently Mm -hmm. And I I think definitely also what just comes to mind uh, when when you were talking about uh, universal basic income in the book, you were basically saying um, the idea is that when you have a job or when you work for somebody, you should be in the position to say, well, screw you. I'm not going to do this, right? Exactly. I call it the safe word, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You should be able to just like snap your fingers and say, okay, I just don't like this drama. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in a different play now. <laughs> exactly. And that freedom to me is probably uh, the reason that I do what I do and uh, work um, and put in the time is because I want to have that freedom uh, right. to be able to, you know. Yeah, that's what freedom is. Freedom control. is to do anything you want you know like like life is a series of games we make up for each other but at least you should opt out of a game if it's driving you crazy mm. <laughs> you know that, that's what freedom really means and there's also a sacrifice i think mm-hmm. at the other th- time because at the other side because we can't have that freedom uh just f- for free as well it's, it's just yeah i think yeah uh, yeah organized society around the and I, we started with caring and, and we ended with freedom, which is, I think is appropriate because I've actually suggested 
I had to give a talk in Paris at the Collège de France for the 50th anniversary of the beginning of May 68, which is interestingly in March and not in May. But um, so I was like, oh, no, I have to say something big, important. What am I going to do? So I came up with something. I said, I think we should get rid of the notions of production and consumption as being the sort of defining principles of, of our economy and instead substitute caring and freedom that you know, what produces value is care, but caring is actually action which is ultimately directed toward maintaining or augmenting another person's freedom. Like, so, so even mothers take care of children. That's, that's the sort of paradigm when we think of caring labor, we think of nurture and care. But what do they take care of children in order for those children to do immediately? Uh, they play. You know, play is the ultimate expression of freedom. It's this action meant as its own end, you know. It's, and, 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 and perhaps that should be the paradigm for the economy as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we should care for each other so as to make each other more free. I think that's a great message. It also, I think that's why you often hear grown-ups uh, just talking so positively about their uh, childhood. Yeah, it, and their children, and that's how people have like justify all the uh, terrible things they do in life and all the compromises. At least I can like you know behave properly toward my own children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, just uh, to wrap things up, um, thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. I will link. Uh, I- your Twitter so people can follow you. It's always uh, enjoyable. Vice versa. <laughs> and is there any other way? Because I, I did uh, find your website, uh, but that, that there's a oh, project, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that's new. David Graber.industries. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I got. I haven't, I, I'm only just starting. I know I'm okay. a neo so did Apparently you, someone had taken davidgraber.com. It might have been me in an earlier life, and I forgot. I'm not sure. So, <laughs> so I kind of went through all the different things that I could. And I said, oh, industries, that sounds cool. <laughs> so, so I'm davidgraber.industries. So what's your plan with the website? P- posting some content, articles? or? Yeah, I think yeah. I might at some point. I I have to, like, I've been doing all this book promotion stuff, so frankly, it's filled all my time. Mm-hmm. And I'm determined for once in my life to have a vacation. So I'm going to run away in a couple weeks and go to Greece um, go to go hang out with some anarchists on an island somewhere and just you know get away. But um, after that, I'm going to start thinking about it. Okay, well, it's good to hear that you are uh, yeah. putting your own uh, ideas mm-hmm. into practice uh, just to maximize the quality of life. So uh, have a great time. I'm a total workaholic. It's pathetic. I mean, I talk about <laughs> why we should work less. I should talk. I should listen to myself sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Take care.